Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank and praise you for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has lived and died and risen again, that we may be forgiven and made your people. We thank and praise you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, who works in us to will and to act according to your good purpose. Our Father, we pray that this evening we might understand this passage from your word about your spirit. We pray that you would strengthen us to not just understand, but to remember and to put into practice what we hear. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What makes a spirit-filled church? What would a church look like if it were keeping in step with God's Holy Spirit? How would you know if the Holy Spirit is there in your church? Well, I googled that question and uh, here are some of the responses that I found. What makes a spirit-filled church? You know, music that gets you up on your feet. People raising their hands to the Lord. Praying in tongues. Laying on hands for healing. Another person wrote this. Some of my sisters and brothers dance in the spirit. Some cry in the spirit, some laugh in the spirit, some are very quiet. For me, when the Lord fills me with his spirit, it's like a heat lamp on my head and I lose control of my jaw. Uh, interesting. Probably a fairly common view in some parts of the church, wouldn't you say? The idea that uh, kind of extraordinary things, things that are out of control, are evidence of the work of the spirit. But is that biblical? What does the Bible say? How could you tell from the Bible if a church is keeping in step with God's Holy Spirit? Well, last week, you remember, we thought about what it means for us Christians as people to live by the Holy Spirit. And we saw, firstly, it's not the same as being under law. Okay, we don't have to earn favour with God. No, no, through Jesus, we are set free. We are forgiven. We are made right with God. We are given God's Holy Spirit as a free gift. To, to live by the Spirit is to be, it's to be under grace and not law. But, Warren showed us last week, that's not an excuse to indulge our flesh, or sinful nature, as the NIV calls it. No, no, being filled with God's Spirit, it means we war against our sinful nature. We, we turn away from the kind of vices that we saw there in chapter 5, verse 19. Uh, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. Uh, the Holy Spirit helps us to turn away from those vices. The Holy Spirit helps us instead to strive for the kinds of virtues that you see in verse 22. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The Spirit works in us to turn us from vice to virtue, to, to, help us, to help us, in fact, gain self-control rather than lose self-control. All right, well, now in chapter 6, Paul shifts his focus a little bit. We're still talking about um, the work of God's Holy Spirit, but previously the, the focus was a bit more on us as individuals, individual virtue, but now the focus just shifts slightly to be more on our communal life, to be more on church life. It's, it's what it looks like to keep in step with the Spirit as a church. So, 
What does a spirit-filled, spirit-led church look like? Point number one. Paul says, in a spirit-led church, the people help each other to be godly. The people help each other in our war against the sinful nature. When someone falls into sin, Paul writes, spiritual people, that is people who are keeping in step with the spirit, spirit-filled Christians, spirit-filled Christians will help them to turn away from their sin. It's not going to be in a self-righteous way. Spirit-led people mustn't be conceited. I mean, what is there for a sinner saved by Jesus to be conceited about? Really, is there? There's nothing to be conceited about. There's no room for self-righteousness. There's no room for being a kind of a, a busybody, arrogantly sticking your nose in other people's business. No, no. Spirit-led people are gentle and humble. They know what it is to be a saved sinner. But the thing is, in a spirit-led church, Paul says, people don't stay on the fringe. They don't kind of keep relational distance from each other and then just leave each other to fall into sin or fall away from Jesus. In a spirit-led church, people get involved. They, they move in from the fringes. They, they carry each other's burdens. Come with me. Uh, we'll go back to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 25. Galatians chapter 5, verse 25. I want you to see that this is it's, it's part of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Of course, there's no um, chapter gaps in the original. So just see how it flows through from chapter, verse 25, chapter 5. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, which in context is all Christians, all people who are keeping in step with the Spirit, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law, not, not the Old Testament law, but the law, if you want to call it that, if you want to call it that, the law of Christ. In a spirit-led church, people don't stay on the fringe. They, they move in and help each other to turn from sin and live for Jesus. Now, it's not always easy to get the balance right on this, is it? It is possible in churches to find self-righteous people, I'm sorry to say. It is possible in churches to find busybodies. I just don't think that that is the problem for most of us here. I think for most of us here, our problem is the other way entirely. We are so busy with our own lives. I think we do stay a bit on the fringes of each other's lives. Sometimes people drift away into sin or, or, or drift away from church and most of us hardly, ever, hardly even notice. It's like, yeah, it could be, uh, could be a little while since I've seen that person. Four or five years, maybe. <laughs> it's, people just drift away. Nobody notices. It's very, very rare for us to get involved and say, hang on, haven't seen you for a while. Hang on, what are you doing here? Something like that. I think that's the right analysis of us as a church, isn't it? I'm not sure we carry each other's burdens all that well. Now, it's not easy. It's not easy. Not easy to move in from the fringes of each other's lives. It takes time, takes effort, and it's not always appreciated. But in a spirit-led church, people get involved. While I was away, Warren faced a difficult situation. A person who used to be part of our church um, has decided to marry a non-Christian. 
Now Warren, being a spirit-led pastor, when he found out, straight away he called the person to warn them. But I have to say, from what I've heard, it wasn't appreciated. The person was very unhappy to be challenged. At one point, Warren said to the person, What are people in your current church saying to you? Is nobody else warning you about this? No, the person said with scorn. Everyone here is fine. Only Chatswood people aren't happy for me. In our culture, it doesn't go down well. People don't want to be challenged. When people do sinful things or unwise things, they don't want to be helped. They just want us to mind our own business. But God says here that a spirit-led church needs to be swimming against the tide. In a spirit-led church, people don't stay on the fringe. It isn't a fringy church. People care enough about each other. People care enough about each other's relationship with God that with humility and love they will help each other to turn from sin and live for Jesus. Second point, second feature of a spirit-filled church. Paul goes on to say that um, in a spirit-filled church, people don't whinge about everyone else's failings. Instead what they do, they take responsibility to do their bit. Paul says, in a spirit-filled church, people... People don't go on as if they're someone special, as if they've got some authority to tell everyone else what they ought to be doing. They don't go on as if they're something special. They don't constantly compare themselves with other people. Instead, they take responsibility for themselves. They take pride in themselves, in what they do for Jesus. They don't whinge about what everyone else doesn't do. They bear their own load. Verse 3. Verse 3. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. If you just allow me to have a bit of a whinge for a while, one of the absolute pains of being a pastor is dealing with people who love to whinge but who don't want to do anything to fix what they're whinging about. People come with all kinds of grumbling. This church is unwelcoming, by which they mean other people aren't welcoming them. This church is unloving, by which they mean other people aren't loving them. This church doesn't do evangelism. This church doesn't care for the poor. This church doesn't have such and such. On and on and on they go with all this whinging. Don't get me wrong. I do want to be open to correction. I do want to be open to suggestion. I don't want to be defensive. But the reality is, if all the whingers would stop whinging and do something, this church would be much better. If instead of whinging about what's not being done, whingers got in and did their bit, carried their load, more stuff would be happening. If this church is unloving, a spirit-filled church, a spirit-filled person's not going to whinge about it. If this church is unloving, a spirit-filled church will do their best to love, which will make the church more loving. If this church is unwelcoming, a spirit-filled church is not going to whinge about it. If this church is unloving, a spirit-filled, church, a spirit-filled person will get in and welcome, which will make the church more welcoming. Do, do, do you get the picture? In a spirit-filled church, people stop whinging 
They stop thinking they're someone, they're the arbiter of what the church should or shouldn't be doing. They're the one who can say what a good job or not everyone else is doing. They stop comparing themselves with all the hopeless people around them. They try to be part of the solution rather than just point out the problem. In a spirit-filled church, people carry their own load. They take responsibility. All right. All right. The spirit-led church isn't a fringy church. People move in, humbly help each other, turn from sin and live for Jesus. And the spirit-led church isn't a whingy church. People take responsibility to make it better. Third, Paul writes, the spirit-led church isn't a stingy church. You like my rhyming? I got very excited about this this week. Fringy, whingy, stingy. Uh, hopefully it's going to help you to remember the, 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 the ideas, all right? Fringy, whingy, stingy, okay? Not fringy, not whingy, and the Spirit-led church isn't a stingy church. Uh, first of all, faithful Bible teachers. Faithful Bible teachers are well-loved and well-supported. People generously provide for them. Verse 6. Anyone who receives instruction in the Word must share all good things with his instructor. Uh, at this point, look, it's only right uh, for me on behalf of my own family and, uh, and Warren's family and Rebecca and our students to say thank you very much. Thank you very much. We feel very much loved in this church. We feel, we feel the vast majority of people show us a real generosity of spirit, kind of give us the benefit of the doubt, and we are very generously supported. Uh, it is all good evidence of the work of God's Holy Spirit in our church, and we thank God for you. But it's not just generosity in supporting Bible teachers. The Spirit-led church is generous in many other ways as well. In a spirit-led church, the people realise that now, now is the opportunity we have to invest in eternity. Now is the opportunity we have to invest in eternity. The, the very best investment of our time and our energy and our money now is in things that will last forever. And the things that will last forever are, of course, the things that we do for Jesus bringing people to know Jesus, helping people to grow in Jesus. In Jesus' name, helping people in poverty or distress or trouble. In Jesus' name, doing good in the power of God's Spirit, doing good for people. There's a day of judgment coming. There is a day of judgment coming. And the work that we do for Jesus will find eternal reward. Our labour in the Lord is not in vain. And so the Spirit-led church, with an eye to, to Judgment Day, with an eye to the future, will be, will be generous in doing good, especially within the church, but not just within the church, to all people. Look at verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, and I don't think that means when our diary isn't booked out or when we don't have to get our hair done or something like that, I think it means now, in this life, before Judgment Day, when it is possible to do things for eternity, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Okay, what have we got so far? The Spirit-led church isn't 
fringy. Um, people move in, help each other live for Jesus. The spirit-led church isn't whingy. Okay? People take responsibility to make it better. And the spirit-led church isn't stingy. Very good. People are generous in doing it. I told you it would help you to remember. Okay, now in the last section. Last section, Paul, um, Paul reminds the Galatians of what is really the first, the first and most important feature of a spirit-led church. Um, and it, it's exactly the same thing he's been talking about for the whole rest of the letter. The spirit-led church gets the gospel right. I'm sorry, I couldn't think of another ingy word to make it all rhyme. Um, I've had lots of suggestions today. I might tell you about a few of them that I've had during the course of the day. But let's just, I wasn't convinced by any of them. The, spirit, the spirit-led church gets the gospel right. Verse 11, Paul says, he says, I'm writing this last bit myself. Okay, so he obviously he's been dictating to what we call an amanuensis, somebody who writes it down for him. But now he, he says, I'm writing it myself, and he says, I'm writing in big letters. Okay, so this is the bit that's underlined. This, this bit is the email, all in capital letters. Have you ever read one of those emails? This is the loud bit, the, the critical bit. Okay, verse 11. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. And in big writing... Paul goes back over the same things he's been saying all the way through the letter. The true gospel is the gospel of Jesus alone. It's the good news of how Jesus died and rose again. It's the good news of how Jesus has done everything it takes for us to be forgiven and made God's people. It's the good news of how Jesus has done everything it takes for us to be first-class fully-fledged, card-holding, fair-income, couldn't get any more Christian Christians. Okay? Jesus has done all that we need. There's nothing to add. Jesus has done it all. Remember, you remember, of course, there are false teachers in Galatia. They're saying it's not enough just to trust Jesus. They're saying you've got to do your own bit as well. Um, the particular teachers, they were saying you've got to get circumcised, you've got to become Jewish, follow the Jewish law as well as, as trust in Jesus. Well, Paul has another go at them here, and he says, first thing he says, again, he's already said this, but he says again, they're just just trying to avoid persecution. They're not, um, this teaching trying to get the Galatians to be circumcised, it's not about truth, okay? One of the people who suggested this morning, um, it's a cringy teaching, okay? It's just scared of the people who are going to persecute them, the the non-Christian Jews. It's a way to avoid persecution from non-Christian Jews. It's not about truth, it's about getting out of trouble. Verse 12. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. And Paul then says again, no one can save themselves. You want to be saved, you're going to be in the dark. This was another suggestion from this morning. It's, it's dingy teaching. It leaves you in the dark. It doesn't bring you into the light of the gospel. All right? Paul says... Not even Jews are good enough. They, they don't keep God well. Even the Jews don't keep God's law well enough to be saved. No one can earn heaven, not by being Jewish, not by any, any other way. You can't do it. Verse 13. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. People can't save themselves. Only Jesus can save people. And so Paul says, the only thing that matters is Jesus. The only thing that matters is being a new person through Jesus, through his death and resurrection. 
That's what brings God's peace. That's what brings God's mercy. It's Jesus and Jesus alone who makes us God's holy people. Verse 14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Spiritual churches hanging on to the gospel. They're, they're not unhinged from the gospel, was another suggestion this morning. It's not an unhingy church. That was Jeff. <laughs> they're hinged to the gospel. They get the gospel right. Uh, Paul finishes. Paul finishes by saying, take a look at me. I'm, I'm covered in scars. The whole world, full of non-Christians, hates me. I don't need you Galatians to hate me as well. Bad enough that all the non-Christians hate me. I don't need the Christians to hate me as well. Verse 17. Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. It's an incredibly sad fact that a lot of the pain that comes to people who try to teach the truth about Jesus comes from within churches. It's amazing how, how mean some churches, some people in churches can be. Oh, I keep running into ministers who are suffering depression. And they've got all kinds of terrible stories of things that people in their churches have said to them or done to them. Uh, Warren was telling me the other day he met a pastor of a, a local Presbyterian church. The people in his church are just being awful to him. This bloke was so miserable, so depressed, that Warren, originally he was going to harass him about not doing a job that this bloke's supposed to have done for us. But Warren took so much pity on him at the end, he said, mate, can I read the Bible and pray with you? Can I help you? He was just so miserable. I recently read an article that said that around about 70% of ministers are depressed. You know what the number one reason given was? Not Richard Dawkins and the New Atheists, not uh, persecution from the Islamic world or something like that. No, no, number one reason why 70% of ministers are depressed, conflict in the congregation. Conflict in the congregation. Paul is saying here, will you give me a break? I have plenty of non-Christians persecuting me. Look at the scars. I don't need you Galatians to join them. He finishes with a prayer. He finishes with a prayer that Jesus' grace will be with the Galatians. Not God's law, not their own efforts, but the grace of Jesus. Verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. All right, so that's the number one thing. That's, that's, the, that's the capital letter feature of a spirit-led church. They get the gospel right. They hold to the true message about Jesus. They don't try to save themselves. They let Jesus do the saving. The spirit-led church gets the gospel right. Okay, what do we end up with? Our four features of a spirit-filled church. First, first point is this last one here. First point, the, the spirit-filled church gets the gospel right. Excellent. Um, number two, going back to the beginning of our passage, the spirit-filled church is not fringy. We get in, help each other. And number three, they're not whingy. People take responsibility. And number four, they're not stingy. People generously support Bible teachers, generous about doing good. Well, friends, hopefully we've remembered it. How are we going at doing it? What do you reckon? Are we a spirit-led church? 
Well, let's, let's think about it for a little while. Of course, it's, it's got nothing to do with whether we sing or whether the band plays in time or whether we wave our hands or whether we fall over or speak in tongues or experience transcendent silences or dances. Uh, those things may be good, they may not be good, but from the perspective of this part of the Bible at least, it's just not the issue, is it? The issue is, can we see the Spirit changing us in these four areas? What about that first area? Do we have the true gospel? Do we get the gospel right here in this church? Well, I hope the book of Galatians has helped us with this. I hope we are very clear about it now because hopefully you've heard it every single week for about the last two months or something. Only Jesus can save us. I hope that we as a church know very, very well that we are nothing but sinners who need Jesus. I hope nobody here is thinking they can save themselves by being good or anything like that anymore. I hope everybody here realises we're going to let Jesus do the saving. I hope we have got the gospel right. What about the second one? Are we a fringy church? I mean, I guess before we ask the question more generally, what about you? Are you on the fringe? Are you on the fringe? Do, do you take an interest in how other people are going as Christians in this church? Or are you just too kind of concerned about yourself? Do, do you have the, the kindness to actually listen to other people and learn about them? Do you have the, the humility to encourage other people, tell them how good they are, their goodness doesn't make you worse or something. You don't have to put everyone down to make you feel better. Do you have the, the humility to encourage? Do you have the bravery to even rebuke or challenge if someone's doing something obviously wrong or, or falling away? Of course, we've got to get the log out of our own eye before we deal with other people's specs, but specs are not good in people's eyes. Do you have the bravery to challenge? Can I encourage you, try it. I know it's not comfortable, I know it's not natural, but it's what God wants. Why not, over the next month, why not just pick one person you don't know very well. Pick one person you don't know very well and set yourself the task of getting to know them. Ask them about themselves. Ask how they're going as a Christian. Ask how they're going in this struggle of flesh and spirit. Offer your encouragement. Offer your help. Someone hasn't been at church for a few weeks? You've got a church directory. Give them a call. We need to move in from the fringes. Get involved. What about the third point? Are we a whingy church? Apart from the minister, that is. <laughs> I know we're a very flawed church. I know we could be doing everything better. I know there's plenty wrong with this church because I'm here and there's plenty wrong with this church because you're here. <laughs> I know we could be doing everything better. I know we could be doing a million other good things than we are doing. I know we could be better at loving, better at welcoming, better at serving, better at evangelizing, better at caring for the poor. The thing is, where do you stand in it all? Are you on the sidelines whinging about how hopeless all the rest of us are? 
This morning at 7 o'clock I was practicing this sermon with just my three boys here. And at this point they said, it's just like when we were in Italia, in Italy, and we were watching the Fiorentina games. We were watching Florence play in the soccer. They said, you're up in the stands, and the Italians, from up in the stands, well in Italian, but I'll do it in English for you. They, they're up in the stands and they go, pass, pass, pass. And the guy passes and they go, why didn't you shoot? <laughs> or they go, shoot, shoot, shoot. And the guy shoots. They go, why didn't you pass? They, they're just up, up on the sides and they know everything better than the professional players who are getting millions of dollars of these guys smoking. And <laughs> they know everything better than the soccer players. They're Monday's experts for any, uh, anybody who likes that. All right. Where are you in terms of... Our, are, you, are you on the sidelines whinging about how hopeless everybody is or are you in on the field with us taking responsibility? Are you carrying your load? Are you doing your bit to make it better? Are you the one who points out the problem? Or are you part of the solution? Last point. Are we a stingy church? Now, reality is, as a church, we are extremely generous. Uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars is given every year by our church, and we're not that big a church. But the fact is, the vast majority of the money that is given is given by about 30 to 40 extremely generous individuals or families. It's about 30 or 40 people who give nearly all of the money that's given in this church, and many other people give little or nothing. Is our ministry here helping you? Is it helping you to grow as a Christian? Is it helping you to, to stand firm as a Christian? Fantastic. It's yours. It's free. No charge. Take it. But we do rely on spirit-led people to support us. And I hope God's spirit is helping you not to be stingy. Because it's not just about money, though. The spirit-led church are people who are unwearying in doing good. The spirit-led church is full of people who, who wake up in the morning and think, you know, today is a day where I could do something that counts for eternity. Today is a day where I could talk to someone about Jesus, where I could show love in the name of Jesus, where I could work as unto Jesus. Today is a day that I will give account for before God on the day of judgment, a day in which I could find eternal reward. Is that how you wake up? Are you unwearying about doing good? Are you making eternal investments? Because Judgment Day will show it up. Well, friends, I thank God for every evidence of the work of the Spirit in our church, and I see plenty of it. I see plenty of people in looking after people. I see plenty of people who are taking responsibility, plenty of people who are generous in their time and their money and their energy. I see plenty of spirit-led stuff in our church. I believe we are a spirit-led church, no doubt about it. But there's stacks more to do, isn't there? So let's pray and ask God to help us. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank and praise you for your magnificent mercy shown to us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has done everything it takes to make us first-class, fully-fledged Christians. We thank you, Heavenly Father, there is nothing we can do, nothing we need do, because Jesus has done it all. 
We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would so fill us with your Holy Spirit that we rely sincerely on Jesus. And we pray that by your Spirit you would empower us to live as your people, caring for each other, carrying each other's load, taking responsibility to do our part. Pray, Heavenly Father, that we might be rich in good deeds. And we pray that we might stand firm, relying on Jesus as our Lord and Saviour all our days. We pray it in his name. Amen.